0: Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New Jersey is Jerry Blast. Jerry is President and CEO of Comply Assistant. And today we're going to be talking about third party data breaches and the risks there. Jerry, first of all, thanks for taking the time to
1: talk to us. Well, thank you, Adam. It's it's my pleasure. Mine as well.
0: So now, Jerry, when it comes to third party breaches, what types of third parties are most likely to be the source of the breach these days
1: well that that's a great question, <clears throat> and what it really boils down to is that third party vendors are you know summarized into different types according to <clears throat> their use of their clients' data, their transmission, and their storage. so when a third party Vendors are put into a category of inherent risk based on their contract. The inherent risk revolves around what do they do as part of the contract? Are they storing the patient data like a cloud host? Are they using it, such as a a company that is remotely accessing their client's EMR for data analytics or for collection of AR? Um, Are they transmitting data? So the first thing that covered entities need to do is to determine an inventory of their third parties and give them an inherent risk score. Um, so for example, a, a third party BA business associate cloud host needs to implement administrative, physical, and technical controls for the client's data. <clears throat> their um, Their inherent risk is high because they are storing their client's information. But that could be reduced through um, things that the covered entity hospital provider um, entity <clears throat> should do to examine controls. So what kind of controls are in place, which could reduce inherent risk down to even a low risk. So again, it's not necessarily um, types of third parties that come into play. Um, to be likely for a source of a breach, but it's more about their inherent risk and the controls they have in place. You know, when you think internally of um, a hospital or a covered entity, um, risk is based on scope and complexity, the size, you know, the, do they have a large workforce? Um, how complex is their network? Uh, how many applications do they have? Uh, so it's a numbers game, but definitely, in regards to internal. So I just wanted to distinguish between internal risk versus external third-party risk in that internal is a numbers game and external is based on what do they do in the, under the contract for their client. What they do turns out to um, you know, change the inherent risk score right up front, and then it's a matter of looking at um, controls at that point.
0: Well, it's definitely sounding quite like a complex equation there that needs to be navigated. Now, what should organizations do when onboarding a new third party to reduce the risk of a breach? I mean, there's always going to be a certain amount of inherent risk, but what do you do to try and limit it?
1: So, especially for a cloud host, the BAs that are hosting clients' data, uh, covered entities should be doing a combination of technical and administrative type assessments. A technical assessment is an assessment of vulnerability that can be actually seen from, there are vendors out there like a company called BitSight that can uh, do a vulnerability assessment technically on a vendor's uh, site, their website, etc., cetera, their um, web application site, and they can come back with a score of technical rating. Uh, so that's one part of it. The second part of it is that the covered entity should be attaining what's called the SOC 2 report. SOC 2 report is a data center audit that should be done at least once a year. And that will um, highlight any issues that a covered entity should be aware of. So for every um, high risk cloud host, especially, they should be gathering the SOC 2. And then third, for all of their um, third parties in risk order, high, medium, and if they ever get to low, if it depends on how many third parties they have, they should be conducting an administrative Q&A. That Q&A should be touching on the administrative, physical, and technical safeguards. Uh, do they have a security management program? Do they train their workforce? Do they have policies and procedures? Do they have a sanction policy? Similar to what covered entities need to undergo like under a HIPAA security audit and privacy. Um, BA should also have a subset of a full-blown uh hipaa security audit and it's a subset that is um focused on um you know let's say instead of 130 questions maybe it's more like 40 high level questions but they do cover the entire hipaa security rule and that gives um a covered entity answers attestations from their vendors um, high risk medium risk whatever gives them the ability to um evaluate documentation that the third party should be providing, and to then uh, determine from a control standpoint, uh, inherent risk, but now control risk. Any vendor that comes under a high risk under controls uh, needs to be further reviewed or other types of decisions that need to be made um, you know, based on the results. And so um, you know, when it comes to um, onboarding, that should be done especially upfront uh you know pre-contract is when the vendors will answer the questions right away and then based on the initial pre-contract um assessment uh, the covenant entity should be doing periodic uh based on the results of the, of the first assessment and minimally once a year because of change management just as hospitals and other types of uh, provider covenant entities have changes that occur organizationally technically et cetera, then um, vendors do too So you can't just go with one assessment. You need to do periodic assessments at least once a year.
0: Which certainly makes an argument for making sure you have the rights to do those audits and assessments on an ongoing basis. So based on the current threats out there, um, what should compliance people be verifying with their parties to ensure that they are appropriately secure?
1: Another great question. So as we talked before, you know, there's the Q&A part of assessment. And some of the things they should be looking at is, number one, does this third party who could be storing or using information, do they have downstream BAs that are part of the process and where are they located? So uh, a COVID entity not only needs to know about the primary third party, but they need to know what is else in the picture. Is there a, uh, a downstream business associate of that third party Who might reside offshore where there could be different rules and regulations not even associated with hipaa they need to know that another thing is um, if a ba has workforce members that are accessing applications remotely especially remotely and in these times of this pandemic pretty much everything's remote you know if, the, if a, a workforce member of a BA is terminated, what controls are in place to make sure that they no longer have access to the client application, like an EMR? Um, so controls could be a number of things that either happen on the front end, on the uh, BA side, or timely notification to the company entity that this workforce member no longer is no longer active and it should be deactivated on the client side. So imagine the kind of risk that could occur if there's a, uh, a workforce member of a BA that is disgruntled due to being terminated and still has access to client data. And that, that definitely poses a high risk. Um, that all should also come into play in the BA agreement. The BA agreement should specify certain uh, requirements, such as, as you mentioned, they should be allowed, you know, required to be audited on the periodic timeframe. They should be um, providing, uh, you know, um, timely notification of workforce terminations if they have workforce access in client data. And they should be telling their clients of any other BAs that are in the picture of the contract to get the work done. Um, again, it all goes back to um, controls and legal requirements of the, of the third party. The fact of the matter is that as of... Um, Recently, you know, even just 2019, 63% of breaches and cyber attacks were directly or indirectly related to third parties. So all of all of this activity needs to be um, done to really understand the control, the risk profile, and control profile of the high and medium risk third parties, and then eventually, low risk is probably handled really through the BA agreement at that point.
0: That 63% figure is certainly scary, and it it makes me think back to the earlier point we discussed about the importance of auditing. Um, How often should third-party data security practices be audited?
1: Right. So, again, it goes back to the initial audit, um, which hopefully is pre-contract, because that's when you really get the information you need and you can request it because they want the deal. Um, After reviewing the results of the primary audit, then it's a matter of saying, okay, do we need to audit them again in six months? Do we need to audit them again every year? I would say minimally once a year for all of the high risk vendors. And again, that goes back to change management. So, you know, the results of what happened a year ago may be a different risk profile um, this year. And that might even be reflected in the SOC 2 report. If the vendor is a cloud uh, host, and they have the SOC 2 audit every year. There could be different results in the SOC 2, so I would say minimally once a year, but maybe even more often depending on previous audits. So
0: finally, when a breach occurs, and I don't say if, but when, since it seems inevitably something you know does go wrong for every organization, what's the best way to begin the response?
1: Well, you know, certainly there should be a standard approach. Um, And, of course, uh, it can be a little bit tweaked depending on the actual scenario of the breach. But for a typical breach, once it's determined that it potentially uh, was a breach, covered entities should follow the guidance provided by HHS in the high-tech Omnibus Final Rule for determining probability and scope of compromise. So there's a whole question or workflow logic that they go through. To determines, um, is this a breach? Um, is it a reportable breach? Is it not reportable? What's the probability of compromise? And that's a definite exercise that should occur. In some cases, they need to hire forensic experts that are technical. That like, especially like in a ransomware attack, phishing attack, um, where there is impact on a network, uh, you know, forensic experts can come in and determine the extent of the potential damage of the breach so they may or may not be required depending on the scenario um, and then what comes into play is once a lot of information is gathered put together um, the internal <coughs> covenant to the internal and or external or both legal team should be involved and really be involved from the very beginning along with hr and public relations Um, so that they are involved right away, they're kept up to date, and they can all agree on the result of the incident. And the incident may turn out to actually not be a reportable breach, um, but it certainly could be one. Um, If a breach is caused by the BA, um, they need to uh, do the same thing. So when you talk about responding to a breach, you know, initially I was focusing on maybe it's you know as a result of a covered entity having to breach but if it's a third party that has data stored from the covered entity or in use but mainly stored uh, they need to do the same thing they need to follow the same kind of procedure and they need to adhere to the reporting terms in the ba agreement so um, there's a the standard reporting time frame from the government in relation to hipaa for a ba but client uh, Client covered entities might have made that reporting time frame sooner than later. Um, they may have reduced it down, you know, instead of you know 60 days maybe to 10 days. So the BA needs to keep that in mind and and uh, make sure the covered entity is up to is is aware of the breach in the time frame that's um, according to the terms of their agreement. There's, um, you know, the actual time frame to get results could be months. And then, as a result of um, the response, is what did we learn from this? What do we need to mitigate, perhaps? What do we need to do to try to prevent it from happening again and and go from there?
0: Yep, and there's always a need to do that. I mean, since it does seem as if, even for the best of organizations with the best of plans, all it takes is one employee to make one mistake for things to go off the rails. Well, uh, Jerry, thank you so much for sharing those insights with us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Triltaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.